Well, I'm glad you're here, and uh, we're, we're continuing the series called The Greatest Job on Earth. And what that means is, what job is greater than making disciples? My argument is there is no job greater than making disciples. But we want to learn how to make disciples who know how to make disciples. And if you've been here for this series, you're probably picking up that really mostly what I'm talking about is how do we develop a disciple-maker's heart. And last week we looked at Luke chapter 6, so I hope you have your Bibles with you. If you didn't bring your Bible, there should be one right in front of you in the back of that pew. If you need to get onto our Wi-Fi, it's Cornerstone with a capital C. But I want to make sure all of us get our Bibles open, open up to Luke chapter 6, and we're going to look through the the verses of verse 36 through 42. Verses 36 through 42. And while you're opening up your Bible, let me tell you what I think is a true story. I can't verify it, but I think it's a true story. It was a mother who once approached Napoleon. Now, if you're familiar with Napoleon, he, he could be often a very brutal, heartless dictator. A mother approached Napoleon... Because she wanted to ask him to pardon her son. And the emperor replied that the young man had committed a certain offense twice and justice demanded his death. Now listen to this. The mother said, but I don't ask for justice. I plead for mercy. Now I want you to hear that. She said, I don't ask for justice. I plead for mercy. Napoleon said, but your son does not deserve mercy. And she said, sir, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. Well, then Napoleon said, I will have mercy. And he spared the woman's son. Louis Palau shared that story at one of his evangelistic crusades and I suspect that it might be true and what it what a great example of what really what mercy is mercy is not something that any of us deserve but thank God it's something that he gives well we learned in Luke chapter 6 and we started this chapter last week this is a sermon that Jesus preaches do you know what joy it is if you if you ever asked me to tell you what's the what's my favorite part of the scriptures to preach. Here's I would not have told you this eight years ago because I wasn't aware of this. But what I would tell you now, having been preaching faithfully for the last eight years, is this. It's the words of Christ. There's nothing better. There's nothing better to preach on than Jesus. And so we're preaching through a sermon that is actually a sermon that Jesus preached. I don't know how much better you could get. You're really only getting my commentary on it, but go past my commentary. You're really getting to hear a sermon that Christ preached. He preached this, and it started back a little bit earlier in Luke, and it's going to go all the way till, well, till he's done preaching. If you've got a red-letter Bible, you'll see it. And what a great sermon it is. And what we learned last week is this. If we're going to be disciple makers, if we're going to make disciples who know how to make disciples, listen, here it is. You ready? I'm going to start you right out with the review. You've got to love persuasively. You and I have got to love persuasively. And nowhere can you love more persuasively than love an enemy who has set himself or herself against you. We've got to love 
persuasively. That was last week's sermon, and I gave you all of the illustrations, six of them, that Jesus gave. How do you love persuasively? He gave six ways to do that. What we're going to look at today is point number two, and this is a five-point sermon. We're going to hit the next two. We're going to hit two today, and then we're going to finish it up, Lord willing, next week. We've got to love mercifully. So look with me, verse 36. Here we go. We're going to jump into this, and we're going to fly, and this is going to be a hard-hitting sermon, so I hope you can brace yourself and get ready for it. Here's what he said. This is Jesus preaching. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. So I'm going to change one word. Actually, I'm going to change two of them. And it's not going to harm the text. You ready? Here's what it is. Be full of mercy, even as your father is full of mercy. Are you full of mercy? Now to get the full force of this command, now remember, this is not a suggestion. Jesus did not just say, you know, I think you should try to be full of mercy. I think it'll go better for the kingdom of God if people who call themselves Christians make an effort. He's not saying that. This is a command. Be merciful is a command. And if you want to get the full force of that command, that you need to understand something about ourselves. Now, this is not good. This is not comfortable To hear, but it's true nonetheless. You ready? Brace yourself. Sometimes you just got to get ready to get hit by the gospel. And it actually is a beautiful thing. Because it destroys pride in us and it brings humility. Here it is. We were not pretty good people who just needed a little help and God provided it. We weren't almost there. We weren't almost acceptable to God almost righteous. We weren't just about there and he just had to give us a little nudge to get over the knoll. We were absolute sinners before Christ got hold of us. We were guilty. Now listen, you gotta, you gotta let this hit you. Now interact with this, ready? Here's how you do it. This is what I have to do when I'm hearing sermons. You've got to say, you've got to take my words, and if you feel like they're true, if you believe that they're true, you've got to bring them into your heart. And you've got to say, no, I'm not going to let me get distracted. I'm not going to let my soul deflect this just because it's uncomfortable. I'm going to bring it in. We weren't very good people just needing a little help. Listen, we were guilty of violating the sovereign king's laws. We were sinners. We missed the mark. We were dead in those sins. We were ignorant of God's ways. We lived according to our fallen desires. Listen, I was saved at four, almost five years old. And that was as true of me when I was a little baby boy as it is now. I was a sinner. I have great, great tendency to sin. I think I've shared this before, but it bears sharing again. I really, really began to understand how we are born into sin when I had children. And that really occurred when one of my children turn he was he was almost exactly six months old and he was already uh, crawling and he thinks he's an advanced child and he used to be still is so he's crawling at six months right and so he's crawling and he's going toward i'm watching and i'm sitting on the couch he's going towards an electrical outlet 
Now, it would be interesting if he had a full head of hair to see what electricity would have done. But he didn't really have much hair, and I would never have done that anyways. That was a joke, maybe a sick one. But he's going towards the electrical outlet, and I say, I'm going to give away the identity. He was leading worship. Matthew. Yeah, that's Matthew over there. Matthew, don't touch dangerous. Now, here's what he did. He moved his hand away. And he looked right at me, right into my eyes. He was a bad sinner. Couldn't even do it slyly, which is, I'm thankful for that. Looking right at me, he began to reach right back for that electrical outlet. That was the first time I smacked the back of his hand. I had to teach him a lesson. You've got to learn to listen. That's the sin nature. Listen, at six months old, the sin nature was alive in him, and it was no less alive in me when I was a little boy as well. We were helpless in our sins. And the bad news, listen, the gospel is bad news and good news. The good news is so good because the bad news was so bad. Well, the bad news of the gospel is this. We are all, we were all helplessly, hopelessly lost, and we were doomed to eternal hell. Now, I'm going to tell you this story really quickly. I have another child. I have four of them. I told you my oldest, but I'm going to tell you about my youngest, who's sitting next to my oldest right now. My youngest, well, we had a person in my life group that was concerned for my wife because she cleans um, a townhouse in a not-so-safe area of Easton. And so he gave her a pepper spray gun. And he quickly told her how to use it. And we came to the church, her and I, because we were doing the, uh, the installation service for this building. And we're here, and I get a phone call, and... We rushed back home, and I found out that my littlest guy, who was seven at the time, well, we left the pepper spray gun within reach. He got that, and he thought, gee, I wonder what this does, and he pulls the triggers. There's two triggers on it. Exploding the pepper spray right next to my oldest son, Matthew. Matthew drops to the ground, and ordinarily, you sort of protect the younger ones. Matthew drops to the ground... He's already, his eyes are already watering, pepper sprays, peeling paint off of our kitchen wall. And everybody's yelling, Andy, what did you do? Andy, what did you do? Now, here's what Andy did. He took off running from the kitchen where he discharged the gun, running downstairs, screaming, I've doomed them all. I've doomed them all. (laughs) Tears coming down his face. Listen, the bad news of the gospel is this. We were all hopelessly lost, listen, and doomed to eternal hell. But God, Ephesians says, being rich in mercy. Where would we be if he was not rich in mercy? Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace You have been saved. God gave us what we did not deserve and that we did not earn. We were dead. The Bible says before Christ, we were dead in our sins. Dead people are not animated. They cannot do anything. He gave us what we did not deserve, what we did not earn because of his great love for us. Now listen again to the words of Christ. Here we are back in Luke 6 in his sermon, verse 36. Be merciful even as your father is merciful, not has been, he still is. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. 
Jesus is commanding, be full of the same mercy that God has been displaying to you. And do not judge others. You know what? There's a connection. Now, you got to hear this because every one of you and me are judgers. We are judgmental people. There's a connection between being merciful, full of mercy, and refusing to judge. Listen, they go together. They always go together. Judgmental people have forgotten how bad they were, and they begin to believe that God's mercy was deserved. There's no way that a Christian can be judgmental without forgetting how merciful God has been. And when we get to that point, then we make people earn our mercy, and it destroys love, and it renders disciple-making ineffective. A disciple full of mercy is a disciple short on condemnation and long on love. But that doesn't mean Christians should not judge. Now listen, if if you've experienced what I've experienced— The very moment you call a behavior sin, you're going to hear from a non-saved, non-believing person who made you the judge. Who are you to judge? Listen, that's the common response, and usually it shuts down conversation. It should not, Christian brother and sister, shut down conversation. We are to judge. We're not to be judgmental, and there's a big difference. In fact, Jesus says, do not judge by appearances, Judge with right judgment. You've got to have discernment. And discernment is a function of judging. It's the attitude of judgmentalism. It's not the act of judging that Jesus condemns in his disciples. Lewis Meads writes this. Judgments are opinions that we, have fo- that we form only after we have made a serious effort to know the facts. And for those of us who are Christians, only after we have consulted the teachings of Scripture and prayed for spirit-informed discernment, any lazy or biased fool can have opinions. Making judgments is the hard work of responsible and compassionate people. So judgmentalism is an attitude where we determine if a person has met a standard that we ourselves have set. Do you get to see that now? Judgmentalism, you got a standard and you analyze their lives to see if they've come up to your standard. Now think with me for a moment about a judgmental attitude. We've all experienced this. Where do judges sit? On the same level as the ones they're judging or up above? Now you're starting to understand why we judge people, why we're so judgmental. Judgmentalism is when our heart craves the exalted position and the power of the gavel. Listen, you got to remember this, and I need to remember this. The next time that you and I are being judgmental, we have bypassed what Lewis Meads have said. We have said, you know what, I don't care about analyzing them with grace and mercy and the holy teachings of Scripture. Forget it. They've, they've come short of my standard, and they're going to receive my condemnation. And the next time that we do that, you've got to remember, your heart just climbed up on the raised platform where it longs to be, to have the power of the gavel in your hands that only belongs to Christ. See, judges sit above the ones being judged. Their pride moves them there. And from that elevated perch, we deliberately and mercilessly act as the judge and the jury and 
the executioner. You know, the sick, sinful, merciless part in us delights in handing out the sentence. And look at what Jesus says. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. That word condemn means to pronounce the sentence, the verdict upon the one that we just judged. We love that. We're the judge, jury, and the executioner. That's a lot of power in a person. But the goal of redemptive, right judging is not condemnation, but to move the person to repentance. Listen, you'll know if you're biblically judging when your heart wants to see the person be right before God. That's it. If that's not in your heart, then you're judgmental. But if that's in your heart, it will force you, it will move you to display, it will move me to act out mercy and love that will bring that person to the throne of God's mercy. And any time we judge without doing what we can to bring about the person's repentance, friends, that's merciless judgment, that's an attitude of judgmentalism. But how do you bring about a person's repentance. Well, look what Jesus is about to say. He says, forgive, verse 37, and you will be forgiven. The way we forgive, friends, can move a person to repent. Now, already that ought to be a little uncomfortable because there's a lot of people in our church who are refusing to forgive until the person begs for forgiveness, till the person admits wrongdoing. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Forgive if the person repents and asks for it, and you will be forgiven. Well, that's not what he says. If you want to see a person move to repentance, you will display that power in your forgiveness. You know, there's a lot of words that are really notable in the Bible. There's certain words that seem to contain just a huge part of the gospel in them. And forgive is one of them. But this word, listen, you got to get this. This word is not, it's a verb. It's a verb. So you ready? Here, if I were you, I'd be right. If this is your Bible, not one of the pew Bibles, I would underline it in a little note in the margin. This word really doesn't mean to forgive. It means to dismiss or drop or release, or let go. It was a word actually used for divorce. It was also a word that they could use to let a slave go free. It's a verb. It means to pardon. Drop the charges. Let go of the person's guilt. But I want you to remember what I'm going to teach you right now. You ready? I'm going to differentiate between grace and mercy. And I know Rick Struby and I today were talking. Everybody knows, most of us know this. Grace is getting what you don't deserve and mercy is not getting what you do deserve now we all that's pop theology and that's that's encouraging that's helpful but it doesn't really capture all of what grace and mercy are so you ready get ready to write this down or anchor it into your mind grace is a little bit different than that grace is god's free gift displayed in his forgiveness of our sins it's given to us because we're simply guilty Mercy is God's free gift simply because we're miserable. So now listen, grace is God's free gift displayed towards sinners, removing the guilt from us. Mercy is God's free gift displayed toward his righteous, removing the misery that our sins 
have created. So be full of mercy, Jesus says. Release people from their guilt, and you're going to do two things. It's going to free your heart to love, and it's going to free the one who's hurt us to move to Christ. You cannot love a person and at the same time hold on to a hurt that they've caused you. You just can't do it. You can't really thoroughly love persuasively, mercifully, a person if you're holding on to the hurts. If you hold on to hurts, what it does in us is it moves through resentment. It moves to bitterness. It spreads until your heart becomes hardened. And once it becomes hardened, you actually want them to hurt. You want God to hurt them. Mercy says, no, Father, would you give your grace, take away what they've done to me, the sin and the guilt. And Father, your mercy, bring a new heart to them. Bring to them a desire to repent, to love. So Jesus says, forgive and you will be forgiven. Because a judgmental attitude never lets go of another person's faults and it produces a judgmental response. But when we who have been pardoned so much, I mean, just think, if, he, if God added up all the pardons that he's given to you, would it fit into this sanctuary? I don't think mine would, to be honest. I mean, when you remember all of what God has pardoned in us and you let go of another's hurtful actions and dismiss their debt, you release them from their guilt, it will ordinarily result, ordinarily result in others doing the same for you. What goes around comes around is not far from a biblically taught principle. Forgive and it will be forgiven you. Christian, listen, if we live a love of mercy, a love full of mercy, you will experience more often than not people's mercy to you. And that is persuasive love. And even more so, look what it says, when we give generously. I don't know if you've come out of prosperity theology. If, if you've come out of prosperity theology, this is one of their favorite verses they almost always go to. Let's read it, verse 38. Give and it will be given to you right there. They don't even care. I mean, they like the rest of it because now you can get people to give more, right? Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So whatever you just gave in that offering, triple it and God's gonna give you three times as much back. That's what they teach. But listen, they're not even in the right context. The context is about giving mercy. Be full of mercy. Give mercy. Give dismissal and release from charges against us. That's the context. If you're going to give mercy, it's going to be given back to you in a greater measure. And it's not a one-time act of giving mercy. Over and over, we become mercy Givers generously, freely dismissing the charges of wrongdoing powerfully demonstrates God's love. Now listen, for those of us who are married, every once in a while, I know it's rare, your spouse will do something to offend you. 
And when that spouse does something to offend you, is there a heart of mercy that freely moves back to them? If not, then what begins to happen is you hold on to that hurt and your love cannot be persuasive and your marriage cannot bring people to Christ. Did you know your marriage ought to be a symbol of of Christ in the church? And your marriage can actually move people to want to be part of the church, the bride of Christ, so that he, so that we can know our Savior, our husband, and enjoy that marriage supper of the Lamb. Your marriage is a type of the marriage of Christ in the church. It ought to powerfully bring people to Christ. But if you hold on to your hurts, you cannot. In fact, you will move people away. I've had people tell me, listen, if that's what it means... To be a Christian, their marriage, I don't want anything to do with it. I've heard that. Generously and freely dismissing charges of wrongdoing that people have done against you, friends, listen, it powerfully demonstrates the gospel, the gospel of God's love. Why? Because his mercy is new every single morning. You woke up this morning. I'm, I'm assuming that most of you have awoken that was a joke. Somebody said you got to get a joke book. I really, if you want to get me one for a belated pastor's appreciation gift, that would probably help. But listen, you woke up this morning and your mercy bank was full. Is your checking account very full? Well, I'm telling you what, your mercy account is fuller than your checking account ever will be. It's full to overflowing. And God says, I am full of mercy for you. Let's get out there. Let's live in a way that's pleasing to me. You know how they gave, you know how grain merchants would give out grain? Okay, let's say that you, let's just say, ladies, you're going to go to the market because often you're the one doing it. You go to the market and there is a stall and there is a grain merchant. And you say, I want to buy a basket full of grain. And so here's what that person's going to do, that merchant. He's going to actually crouch down and he's going to put his knees around the basket to hold it securely. And he's going to pour his grain into the basket. That was the measuring device. He's going to pour it two-thirds of the way full. Then he's going to stop. This is how they did it. He's going to grab the rims of the basket and he's going to shake it back and forth and around in a circular fashion, getting all of those grains, kernels of grain to settle into all of the empty space. And then he's going to tap it on the ground and then he's going to fill it back up again until it comes right flat even to the rim. And then he's going to tap it some more and then he's going to fill it up some more until it creates a cone. And most merchants, I'm not kidding you, I'm not making this up, most merchants would take a rod and they would go right down the top of that cone and then pour more grain right into that little hole that they just created until it is absolutely full. And now you you know what you're going to do, ladies? You're going to take your cloak and you're going to grab the bottom of it and it's so long that you can easily do this and keep your modesty. You're going to bring your cloak up and you're going to fold it into a pocket and he's going to take that basket and he's going to pour it right onto that pocket and that's how you're going to carry that grain home. That's how they did it. Now listen to this. Jesus says, give mercy, that's the context, give willingness to forgive, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. He is drawing on the culture of the day. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. That's how God pours out his mercy to us. 
And it's how we are to pour out mercy to others. Listen, there is no shortchanging others with mercy. You've got to let it overflow from you to them. Even more than they deserve, because if they deserved it, you're not giving them mercy, you're giving them a paycheck. Do not judge, do not condemn, but pardon everyone generously and you will love so persuasively that people want to know why you're different and they will hunger after Christ. So we've learned two things. This whole sermon's about discipleship. And we've learned that if you're going to be a disciple who can make disciples, listen, your love's got to be persuasive. You've got to love your enemies because the world can't do it. And your love has got to be full of mercy. But then thirdly, your love must be discerning. We've got to love discerningly. Does it surprise you that this whole passage, verses 20 through 49, it's just one long sermon from Christ? You know what the Jews would call preaching? They would call it the karaz, which means stringing beads. Here's what they believe. The rabbi would teach that a preacher, you never linger on any topic or issue, but instead, in order to hold the attention, you move quickly from one topic to another, and this is what Jesus is doing. Except all the way through all those topics is a common denominator. It's the string that's holding them all together. And again, that string is discipleship. If you want to know how to make disciples, this sermon is teaching us. And if I were to define discipleship for you, I'm going to take you to the words of Paul. Him, Jesus, we proclaim, Paul said, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So here's discipleship. The end goal is to to present people mature in Christ. How do you do it? Well, you proclaim Jesus, you warn people, you teach people with wisdom, and then you are with them as you present them to God. But there's two problems, by the way. There's two problems that often happen in making disciples. Number one, and you're going to see it in the text, we often follow the wrong teachers. That might be books. That might be television preachers. That might be pastors. That might be trusted mentors, but we often follow the wrong teachers. And secondly, we ourselves are often not becoming mature in Christ. Yet listen to Christ's warning. Now look at verse 39 with me, chapter 6 of Luke. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Now he's talking about false teachers. He's talking about those who aren't teaching truth. So is the one that's discipling you, and are you, when you're discipling others, able to see the truth clearly? Are your eyes open or are you blind? Now you remember what a disciple is? Can you remember this throughout the rest of the series? A disciple means, literally, means learner. A disciple loves to learn. Now listen, you don't have to be a reader to be a learner. But you do have to be a humble listener. You don't have to be a reader, but you've got to be even more than a humble listener. You've got to be an eager student. 
A lifelong, humble, listening, eager student. That's what a disciple means. It's a learner for life. So who are you learning from? Who is teaching you? Now listen, if I'm the only voice that's teaching you, you are an anemic disciple. You cannot grow strong just listening to my sermons. You've got to learn to be able to feed yourself. You've got to learn to love God's word. You've got to learn to study God's word. I'm going to teach you that, I hope, in this series. But you're going to be like the person who is teaching you. Now look what Jesus says, verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher. Now look at me for a second, because I'm going to explain that. A disciple doesn't get above the teacher. So whoever's teaching you, whoever's your disciple... Make sure they're not down here because that's as far as you're going to get if you're learning from that person. So he says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So listen, if you like the way that your teacher lives his or her life in Christ, then learn from them because that's where you're going to become. That's who you're going to become. Listen, if they're not being very kind to their children, not very kind to their co-workers or to their spouse, you might want to find somebody other to learn from. And not only will we be unable to grow beyond the level of our teacher, you're going to be like your teacher. So who has come alongside you and begun to disciple you? Now let me ask you that question, right? I want everybody to, you don't need to respond in any way other than mentally. Now you ready? Who's discipling you? Who's helping to present you mature in Christ? You want to know a little secret? The vast majority of our church will answer that nobody. That's the vast majority of our church. And it's even a greater majority when I ask the follow-up, who are you Discipling, Who are you helping to make mature in Christ? Except for the usual, well, I'm a parent and I'm teaching my children and I think that is absolutely legitimate and needed and you must. But is that a very intentional form of discipleship? Almost no parents can say yes. Yet it is assumed by Jesus that not only is someone discipling us, We are discipling someone else. That's the norm in the kingdom of God. Yet the modern church has so distorted that that it's almost not even present in any churches. And when it is, it's like, wow, how did that happen? Because it seems almost supernatural. And to get our eyes seen clearly, can a blind man lead a blind man? No. To get our eyes opened and seen clearly, Jesus teaches us, verse 41, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? By the way, I am nearsighted. I know you really wanted to know that. I am so badly nearsighted, so Coke-bottled glass lenses nearsighted, so stumbling around blindly without my contacts nearsighted, that I can't literally see beyond here to read. That's how bad my eyes are. But spirit, now listen, but spiritually, I am farsighted just like you tend to be. 
fact, we're born with this condition. You know what the Mayo Clinic says farsightedness is? I'm going to read it to you. It's a vision condition in which you can see distant objects clearly, but objects nearby may be blurry. So you can see better in the distance than you can up front. Now go back to the words of Christ. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, that little tiny thing, yet that big old log that's in your own eye, you can't even see it? Well, that's spiritual farsightedness. And we've all got this condition to varying degrees. We've all got it where we can see the sins of other people better than the sins of our own because our own sins are kind of blurry. They're indistinct while others, wow, they just snap into clear focus. You know what a speck is? And again, he's drawing on everyday language in their culture, a speck was a tiny piece of chaff from the grain that if it got into your eye, it would be an irritant and make your eye water. That was a speck. Or it was sometimes a splinter, a little tiny splinter that would get into your finger or your foot and it just bothers you. I don't really have time to tell you this story, but I have to. This is the best. Carissa, I told you two of my kids. Here's one of my, here's Carissa, my daughter. She got a huge splinter. I didn't know how big it was until we had to go to the doctor to get it out. But here's me, right? As soon as something happens to my kids and we can't get it fixed, I go to the internet. Why not? It's a trusted source of reliable information. So I go on the internet and somebody says, if you got a splinter that you can't get out, take a piece of bread, let it soak in milk until it brings up the milk into the bread, and then ace bandage it to your foot. So I thought, this is brilliant and it's free. I've got all the resources to take care of that splinter. So I said, Carissa, this is going to work. Trust your father. I put a milk-sopping piece of bread on the bottom of her foot because I had tried digging this puppy out. It was not coming out. I put this thing on her foot, and I ace-bandaged it. I said, go to bed by the morning. That thing's going to be laying out on the ace-bandage for us to just laugh and mock at. Man, her foot stunk the next day. It really was horrible. And it didn't move the splinter a bit. We ended up taking her to the doctor. He pulls it out. It was over an inch and a quarter long. And it didn't go laterally into her flesh. It went almost at an angle straight in. I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. That's a great story. I got to preach it one time. But a speck was a tiny piece of chaff. But a log, a log was the main beam supporting your house. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. Man, you can see that little tiny speck of sin that's in somebody else's life, but you've got a whole house supporting beam of sin in your own life, and you can't even seem to see it. That's not mercy. That's judgmentalism. That's what judgmentalism produces, farsightedness. And we need to get out of our lives those glaring faults, those beams that prevent us from accurately seeing the character of another person. Otherwise, look what Jesus says. We're a hypocrite. You know what a hypocrite is, right? That was an actor's term. And they didn't have a lot of stage actors, but they had a lot of masks. So they would take one actor, and they would have several masks. And whenever they put a new mask up on their face, they just switched into another character. And that was called a hypocrite. The word was Greek for an actor. He says, you are actors who, in order to change characters, you just hold up different masks over your face. Because if you don't deal with your own sin, you're going to mercilessly judge others for theirs. 
The gospel comes to us. And the gospel begins to pull the beams out so that all of a sudden we can see clearly. And when you see clearly the sin of another person, listen, it's going to be accompanied by mercy. You're going to be so ready to drop the charges and release them from the guilt. The goal being of maturity, look what Jesus says, to be fully trained like his teacher. That's the goal of discipleship. Because teaching was done by imitation. Did you know that back in that day? Listen, you just sit down in a classroom. You lived life with your rabbi. And as you saw your rabbi live, you began to try to speak like him. You began to try to act like him. You began to eat like him and dress like him. It was imitation learning more than anything else. And you get to see this in the Bible, Hebrews 13. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That's growth. That's maturity. Listen, if you're trying to disciple somebody and you're just going to sit down with them for an hour a week, you're never going to disciple them very far. It cannot be done. That is not the way discipleship works. Discipleship's a phone call that says, hey, how'd you do today? You didn't do very well? Come on, let's pray right now. We're going to ask for God's mercy. Discipleship is, you know what? You're struggling. I got time. Let's go get a cup of coffee. Hey, you know what? Go with me, will you? I got to get this project done. It's one of the ladies in our church. She needs a window put in. Would you help me with it? I want to teach you how to do it. And we're going to love that widow because that's the way we ought to love. That's discipleship. That's how you make disciples, not just giving a bunch of information. So the goal for a disciple was to become like the rabbi and then to help others do the very same. All right, so I've told you about Carissa, Andy, Matthew. I'm going to tell you about my dad. My dad was a builder, built churches all over New York State, and I was forced as a slave to work with him for very little money. God rest his soul. He's dead with the Lord. I'll talk to him in heaven. But my dad gave me a job one time. I'll never, never forget this. I had to cut about 20 or 30 pieces of lumber where we're using it for something. He says, Tim, here's the pilot. Here's the one. I want you to keep this. I've marked it. Don't throw away. This is the model one. And I want you to cut the rest of them to that. Except I didn't listen. I cut the first one from that. Then I cut the next one from the one I just cut and so on down the line. And by the time I got done, they were about three quarters of an inch off because I didn't listen to my dad. My dad said, cut them all to the pilot, the model, the piece that I've given you for a sample. And that's what Jesus is saying. Listen, make sure that you're being trained, being cut to me. Make sure that you're discipling others to me. The original sample. And the goal of discipleship is to make disciples who love like Jesus, act like Jesus, give mercy like Jesus, teach like Jesus, live like Jesus. And we all need somebody to help us mature in Christ so that we can live like that. And then we can help others do the same. You know, it might help you to look at the chart. I put a chart up in the screen and I'm going to fly through this and hopefully I'm going to point you to this a little more information later. But as I bring this sermon to a close, look at this, these spiritual formation stages. Where are you right now on this cycle? Where are you right now? Listen, if you're in Christ, then you're no longer spiritually dead. 
But if you're in Christ and you haven't moved in maturity, then you're probably a spiritual infant. You're not yet a child or young adult or parents. But the goal is that we mature, that we come around, that we get to parent, we're reproducing, we're making disciples. But everybody begins spiritually dead. Listen, nobody goes from spiritually dead to parent. Just like nobody is born a parent in this world. Nobody. You've got to mature. You've got to grow. You've got to grow. You've got to come through a progression. And as an infant grows, he becomes a spiritual child, and he begins to understand basic parts of the Christian faith, but he's still inconsistent, still selfish, still rebellious. And listen, this is where the majority of Christians get stuck. They're spiritual children. This is where the majority of Christians are, right here. And I'm going to tell you why, because nobody has come in their life and said, listen, I love you, and I want to help you get around. I want to help you get to a young adult. I want to help you get to a parent where you can make disciples. You can reproduce Christ and other people, but you're stuck right now, but I'm willing to walk with you and, and help you with that. And if that spiritual child begins to grow, then you become a spiritual young adult and you're eager to serve. Man, listen, spiritual young adults, they love doing something. Their faith has become their own. They're passionate about God. Yet you've got to keep growing. You've got to keep maturing. So you become a spiritual parent. You're reproducing and making disciples. And you do the same for other people. So where are you in your spiritual growth with that chart? Well, if you're an infant, you lack biblical knowledge. You find the Bible confusing. You give a little effort to learning, but not much. You're dependent on other Christians for your walk. But if you're a young adult, or if you're spiritual children, rather, well, then you're probably tending to be self-centered. You're idealistic. You're prideful. You get upset when the church makes a change. You opt out of it rather than participate. That's all what it means to be at a spiritual child. Somebody's got to come alongside them and say, listen, there's further you can go. You can mature in Christ. Young adults, they're passionate about God. They're passionate about other people. They get involved in serving. They're more interested in doing than growing in knowledge of God, but they tend to do faster than they pray. Somebody needs to slow them down and say, you know what, let's discern before we do. Let's aim before you shoot. And spiritual parents prioritize unity. Unity is everything in a church. They're dependable. They're intentionally reproducing disciples. Listen, if you find the world holds you powerfully, that you're running after the world, then you're a spiritual infant. If you find yourself easily offended by other people, then you're a spiritual child. If you find yourself more service-minded than you are pursuing knowledge, you're a young adult. If you find yourself overwhelmed and bored during teaching, you're probably a spiritual infant. Listen, what infants need is a secure relationship with a mature believer. They need answers to their question. And what children need is a spiritual family to belong to, a life group to learn who they are in Christ, how to live as a Christian. What young adults need is a place on the wall to serve Christ. And they need a spiritual parent who will guide them and teach them and help them identify their gifts. And what parents need is someone to disciple healthy relationships with co-laborers and a family, church family to serve. Where are you on that scale? 
And let me close with, the, with these thoughts. Is there anybody that has come into your life and said, I want to help you grow in Christ? Now listen. And is there anybody whom you've gone to and, say, and said, I want to help you grow in Christ? That's the norm in the kingdom of God, but we don't live it. A judgmental heart will never allow you to see clearly enough to help anybody else. But a persuasive love that loves even our enemies and a love that refuses to condemn but, to, but instead discerns the other person, they're going to find that the greatest job on earth, making disciples, is incredibly satisfying and rewarding. And next week, we're going to conclude this sermon. We're going to learn how to love wholeheartedly and how to love obediently. How full of mercy is your heart? How full of discernment are your eyes? Who are you moving toward? And who have you asked to move towards you? That's how we grow in the kingdom of God. Let's pray.